Well, g'day everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Life from the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker and our proud supporter this year is Rafa. If you saw my recent trip Rat to Radelaide and you're wondering what I was wearing, I was wearing the Rafa Limited Edition Unknown Road Collection. The jersey took inspiration from escaping the city and exploring dusty rural roads in the pursuit of a ride into the unknown. Exactly what we were doing on our trip from Ballarat across to Adelaide for the Tour Down Under. An awesome jersey, a great collection. Like I said, that's limited. Get across, check it out. I know I've got mine, so I'm okay. But you guys, if you're in a hurry, make sure you get across and check that one out. Right now, we've got the new episode for you. This week, I'm chatting with Dr. Andre Lagersh, the sports cardiologist at the Baker Institute here in Melbourne. Now, if you're a long-time listener, you would know that last February, I chatted with Andre as well because we chatted about the UCI tests that the pro cyclists have to undergo to be in the world tour, the obligatory checks that we need to do to make sure our heart is up to the level of being a professional sportsman. Well, we just broke down what that actually means. And we looked into what might happen to my heart. Do I need a D-train? What's the road ahead looking like? Well, it's 12 months down the track and I voluntarily took myself into the Baker Institute and went through a whole range of testing. I mean, I did DEXA scans, I did ECGs, VO2 maxes, MRIs while trying to pedal some kind of, you know, small mini bicycle in there. It was a full day of testing. And, of course, I took the mic with me to record it all and let you guys in on what is going on with me after 12 months as a pro athlete. But also, I ask the questions about general health, cardiovascular health. What's going on with our hearts? Where do we need to go as normal human beings, day-to-day exercise, you know, lifestyle choices that we've got to make? I think it's so interesting. And it was really good for me to be able to go in there and do those tests. Well, lucky in a way. You're going to find out in this episode where I'm sitting post-retiring. I'm talking about my cardiovascular system, my physical health. But one thing I'm trying to take more care about now is my overall health, my well-being. As a pro, it was all about performance, the elite stuff. And even though I was using athletic greens when I was racing, I feel like now when time is a bit more precious, it really is my go-to. I start every day with AG1, a small scoop mixed with water. I normally do ice water. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Not only am I getting all my greens, vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, but I'm immediately getting it first thing in the morning. It's just like the perfect way to start for me. I often have a quick coffee straight afterwards and hit the road for an early ride. It's the best way to ride first thing in the morning. Look, if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, The Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash life in the Peloton. That's athleticgreens.com slash life in the Peloton. Check it out. I reckon you guys will really like it. Now, guys, sit back and enjoy this. If you can, you'll probably have a laugh listening to me suffer through these tests. But I think what you'll most enjoy is when we read through the results. Of course, it's a bit of a laugh when I have to go through these tests. And it's pretty interesting, I think, to hear what it takes to go through these tests and to get this data. But the most interesting thing, as always, is talking to Andre because he speaks my language. He's easy to understand and he gives me the lowdown about how I'm traveling. And that's the most important thing. I hope you enjoy it, guys, because I 
sort of did doing the tests, but I certainly enjoy seeing the results. It's the 21st of December, right before Christmas, and <clears throat> I'm on my way down to Melbourne to the Baker Heart Institute, um, where I used to get my UCI testing done, you know, the heart testing with Andre Lagersh. And I'm down there to meet him again today and run through some testing. I'm actually a little bit nervous this morning. I've been fasting this morning. Well, it's only 7.30 in the morning now, so not too hard yet but I'm gonna go down there and run through a whole day of testing to find out what has been going on with me 12 months on since retiring as a pro. Yeah, like I said, just a little bit nervous actually because VO2 max testing and DEXA scans and all this sort of stuff, those truths you don't want to find out, plus some pretty hard efforts along the way. We'll be reporting in throughout the day and listen to me huff and puff and find out what's going on. So, well, here we go. Well, Crystal Janssens, she's taken me into the, the first room. I've arrived here. Now we're going to run through what's going on today. Thanks, Mitch. You're going to be part of, of a research study that Andre is conducting here at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. The testing you're going to undergo um, today, like the risks involved are very minimal, but I'm going to do a fasting blood test. Um, we're going to look at some cardiac markers, um, cholesterol, but then we're also going to um, store a sample to look at your genetics. The genetics that we're going to look at only have to do with your heart, mm. so just with heart function and size we're not gonna look at any other genes then you're gonna undergo a fasting DEXA scan um, that's to look at body composition and bone health we're gonna do a resting ECG the electrocardiogram um, which is usually part of, of screening anyway of, of athletes um, measure your blood pressure you got undergo a VO2 max test then a heart ultrasound and the cardiac MRI. As part of the cardiac MRI, you're also gonna be pedaling a supine bike at different workloads while lying into the scanner. We're gonna inject some dye, it's a contrast that looks at any scarring in the heart muscle. Uh, oh, and then one last thing is that you'll be wearing a 24-hour halter monitor to record your heart rate or heart rhythm for 24 hours. It's a lot there. Pretty special to be able to get this done because not everyone can do this and to be able to have all this data on myself. I know before when I was a professional, I, I didn't understand how special it was to be able to have all that recordings of myself. I think it's quite special. All right, let's get into it. First up, DEXA scan, then the ECG and some blood pressures. So that's how it comes up, um, full body. In terms of composition, so it gives us your total mass, it gives the fat mass, and this machine is accu very accurate in detecting what is fat, also very accurate in detecting what is bone. This is fat mass, this is lean, this is bone so mineral content. 10 kilograms of fat, is that what I'm saying? No. Yes, correct. Which is in terms of percentage, you're at 13.9% of tissue fat. Lean body mass is everything. It's also your fluids, organs. So that really varies. Hence, we do it fasting on everyone. 
Because if you would drink two litres of fluid before coming in, that would add two kilos of lean body mass basically on this scan. If we really want to compare athletes and their kind of lean leanness, we intend to take the trunk out and just compare your arms and legs okay. in terms of lean body mass because it yeah it's organs fluids this machine it's accurate in terms of detecting fat mm-hmm. and bone mineral contact lean mass that can vary because mm-hmm. it also includes your fluids and organs so n- nothing nothing crazy good there more just in normal range normal range nothing crazy good but in general with the especially cyclists we tend to see, see the other way don't the we the other way yeah because um, we have it's bad not a race, it's not a weight bearing sport um all of you are very lean um in terms of you know <laughs> eating enough and um not being energy um, deficient so we look at the bone density and again you're well within the normal range which is good for an endure like a cyclist because mm. we see a lot of the guys in the osteopenic um, range even going to osteoporotic at a young age yeah right and a normal a normal person who hasn't been cycling their whole life would sit around where i am you would expect Correct. Yep. yes i think andre should chat to you about your ecg um what makes it good it just you've got very nice r wave progression and it just looks very normal and you've got good voltages just looks very nice and everything just looks how it should ev- be how it should be every wave that should be upright is upright and every one that should be facing down is facing down and the intervals between the different waves are all normal so it's just a very nice looking <laughs> It really is. What can you see in the blood pressure now that you would be looking for? Is this just a general? General high blood pressure. So we do two. So we, in general, your blood pressure will be measured at rest, like when you go and see your GP. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of, a normal, it gives us the two values, the upper value, the systolic blood pressure, and the lower value is what we call the diastolic value. We want that to be below 140, the upper value, on 90. Um, and then uh, also we will measure your blood pressure during exercise. So your blood pressure is normal. It's kind of on the higher of normal, but normal, 132 on 66. We'll also measure your uh, blood pressure throughout exercise and your blood pressure goes up during exercise. And a lot of the endurance athletes, their blood pressure will go above what's considered normal in terms of blood pressure response Mm. during exercise what they call an exaggerated blood pressure response to exercise we think that's due to the cardiac output or the the big hearts and the flow of the blood coming through when you're pushing high watts on the bike compared to arterial stiffness Mm. which is the main cause for having hypertension so we think it's not bad Mm. we think yes those blood pressures are very high um, but it's probably flow-related during exercise. It's just the sheer flow of the blood coming through rather than the kind of the tubes of your blood vessels being stiff. Um, yeah. Why would mine now be slightly higher, do you think, resting? Oh, it's because, I mean, blood pressure is just so variable. And maybe just because we were talking, yeah. it might have just gone up. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a second one. Um, it's within the normal values. Um, just like upper limits of normal at the moment. Yeah. So let's take another one. 
All right, Andre, we're back here again almost a year after we caught up um, last year, but you've got me in the lab testing. I'm not a pro anymore, as we well and truly know now, but we're going to run through a whole lot of testing, a bit of a lab rat today, aren't we? Yeah, so we're very interested in the long-term sort of implications of doing... How many years were you... A I was over there for 13, yeah. 13 years plus all of the training leading up to that so you know 15 plus years of really high intensity training and racing so what does that do to the heart and you know what does it do when you're racing what does it do when you retire mm. you know, you've got you've got what 70 good years of life left <laughs> it feels like it's over already I've retired I'm going to the end actually hang on I'm just starting <laughs> exactly well I'm interested because Actually, as we were talking on the way up to get a quick coffee this morning, we're sort of in the middle of the testing now. We've done a couple of tests already with Crystal, and now we're about to do the VO2. I've been fasting. It's like I need a tiny bit of energy before I go maximum on this ergo. And what you're telling me um, on the way up here is actually right back in the beginning, I'd forgotten about it. You got one of my very first, I guess, um, laboratory tests um, in about 2008. A bit more along, I think one one or two with when I was with Green Edge, and then one right at the end of my career, um, when I was with EF. So it's sort of a nice little, I guess, I'm assuming, a bit of data. Yeah, fantastic data. Pretty unique to have that sort of imaging over a whole career and to then get an idea now, sort of, mm. I'd call it probably semi-retirement because you, mm. you're still uh, doing a lot of training. But that also is the nature of most, there's not so many athletes that stop cold. So it'll be interesting to see what's, um, what's happening. We've already got a bit of an idea that some of the changes that um, we see during really high training and competition tend to resolve. Some of the things like big pauses or mm. gaps in the heart rhythm, whereas other things tend to sort of come out after retirement, oh. like some of the faster heart rhythms become more common with the combination, combination of years of training plus age. So are you, can you sit here and predict anything, you know, what you might see from the results or anything like that? Because I've been doing 19 hours of training, typically when I was a pro, 33,000k a year. Now I've dropped it back to 11,000k, nine hours of training. Look, it's, anyone out there listening is, oh, he's still training a lot, but what I've come from, it feels like I'm doing practically nothing. Would you see any difference or it's not, a, not enough drop to really see a big enough change? Uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, some of the things we see, for example, in the general population, almost never see pauses or sort of stops in the heart rhythm for more than two seconds. In really highly trained athletes like yourself, we quite commonly, like around 20%, one in five people will see pauses, especially during sleep, and they probably don't need, mm. mean much. And then about four or five percent, we even see pauses longer than three seconds. And if we saw that in the general population, we'd sort of start thinking about pacemakers and things. Whereas wow. in athletes, we just see it all the time. People are perfectly well. And interestingly, we've sort of recently learned that in retirement, they disappear. Oh. So they're the in-training sort of changes. So we might, on your halter monitor, see less pauses or, mm. or, um, or just not see any. Whereas other things like atrial fibrillation, some of these common um, nuisance arrhythmias that tend to occur in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s and become more common, we see those, it seems, we see those more in former athletes than, than the general population. So my suspicion in mm. you is that, that we don't see anything too alarming on all the testing, but in years to come, they'd be the things that we'd look for as well. 
Andre, before I'm geared up, I'm on the bike. We're about to do the VO2. I guess before I put the, the mask of death on, um, <laughs> you know, let's just run me through. What have I got to do today? What's the protocol? So basically this is a ramp protocol that just gets, uh, after a little bit of a warm up, it just gets harder and harder and harder until you fail. Mm. It's a really disconcerting test because normally, you know, you're aiming for a finish line, whereas this is a finish line that just gets further and further away until you, until you pop. Um, but what we do is measure the amount of oxygen that your body uses and it increases with the amount of work you're doing to a point at which it then just can't increase anymore. We call that sort of the plateau. Um, and in most well-trained athletes will clearly find the point at which your body just can't use any more oxygen even if you're trying. So I only need to go to the plateau. I don't need to keep going on the plateau, do I? You don't, but um, to be honest, the time of the plateau is pretty short. Yeah, right. So what we do is just encourage you to give everything. Yeah, you I bet you do. And then yeah. Often it's interesting in athletes, often they actually go past the plateau and the oxygen use actually drops off a bit. It's quite phenomenal. So the whole concept that people are you know that your body is using less energy to do more but that lasts for a very short period of time that's weird isn't yeah. it put the mask on which is going to take my oxygen and then you can uh, keep talking me through what's going on yep beautiful we've got the support of amy crystal and ash here to to barrett to, to push you along provide encouragement they can be like the crowd on the side of the uh alp duets <laughs> And so we're going to make this fairly tight so that we've got an airtight seal. Okay. Yeah, you could sort of cheat around the snorkel. Feel free to move it around. Yeah. Um, and then we've just got a really scientific test to check for any air leaks. So if you breathe out towards my hand, I'm going to plug the hole and we'll listen for any air leaks. Yeah. So breathe out. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Um, so we are starting with that lung function test. So what I'll get you to do is stop pedaling so that it's nice and rested. Sit up tall so that we can get the most out of your lungs. So what this is going to tell us, it's going to tell us about your lung volume, so your vital capacity, and how well you can expel that air. And basically you can see the maximum amount of litres per second that you can push out. Okay. Um, to do that, in a moment I'm going to pop the flow sensor into the end of the mask, and then I'm going to give you some breathing instructions to follow. I want you to do them all breathing through your mouth, not through your nose. So first up, it'll be nice, relaxed breathing, just like you are now. Then I'll tell you to exhale all the way. So without taking a big deep breath in first, I just want you to breathe all the way out until I say, so keep going. Then I'll say, take a big deep breath in, really fill up the lungs as much as you possibly can. And then I'll say, hard out. From the diaphragm, give me a big as hard as you possibly can. And then keep breathing out to assess. So, nice, normal breathing. Alright, make sure on the next one, breathe out all the way, nice and slow. That's it. So, keep breathing out until you fully empty the lungs. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Almost there. And big breath in, fill it up. Good. And then, hard out. Good. Good. That's it. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Almost there. Go, 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 go. And done. <clears throat> So we can see on this axis here, that's your lung volume. The computer has a prediction for a male of your stature usually, and it would say about 5.4 litres, but you just did 7.13, so very nice. And then when we look at the flow, or how quickly you can expel the air, again, it was predicting around 10, and you're up at over 11. Very nice. Yeah, in theory, athletes don't have any bigger lung volumes, but it probably, you know, 
in truth the whole engine is heart and lungs and so bigger lungs are definitely an advantage. So in theory athletes should all have the same size lungs, is that what you're saying? Not the same because it depends on body size, it depends on lots of things but um, if we take athletes and non-athletes, athletes clearly have bigger hearts whereas the lungs are a similar size. Yeah. But then having said that, if you're a big barrel chested unit with big lungs and more room for your heart, that's an advantage. So they're yes, nice uh, yeah. reproducible tests, they're almost photocopies of the same thing. So what that does is that one of the reasons for doing this is partly as a bit of a screen for things like asthma. But the other is if we know the maximum amount of air that you can move in and out of your lungs during exercise, you shouldn't actually ever get there. Yeah. So you, you should be breathing hard and you approach that, but you approach that late in exercise and it's, it's never as much as you're just trying to take the biggest breath that you can. Is this something that you would predict to see drop away as an athlete retires? You know, is this something that as a peak athlete gets in their prime, you're gonna see the best functioning lung and the, the most amount of oxygen intake and using the lungs to their maximum ability. But as I retire, as I stop using it and the need for it, am I then gonna just suddenly, you know, come back in five years time and the body's just like, well, you don't need to suck in seven liters anymore. Yeah, we, we do see that a little bit with heart function and, and definitely the overall heart and lung function, the VO2 does definitely fall away. The, the lung measures that we do seem to stay, uh, they stay more stable. Okay. So now we're just putting in the turbine. <coughs> what that does is these little tubes tell us the concentration of, um, of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the gas that you breathe out. And there's a little sort of turbine like a jet engine in the end of it that tells us how much volume of gas comes out and that um, so by knowing the volume of gas the amount of air that you're breathing and the and the concentration of oxygen and carbon dioxide then we can work out how much goes in how much comes out and therefore how much the body's using and producing oxygen consumption is what the whole test is about and that's because when we exercise the body uses oxygen as its dominant fuel and as a consequence of that, we produce carbon dioxide. So blood pressure cuff is going to inflate now, Mitch, and we're just going to collect two minutes of resting data, and then we'll let you know when we want you to start cycling. Okay. Three, two, one, and you can start. It's really useful for us because um, if you do stages where it's at one area, then then you don't work out exactly which wattage people fail. Yeah. So when we're comparing different individuals, this is sort of um, easier data for us to use. Plus, it's better because it's only 13 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> is there a preferred cadence I should sit at, or just whatever? It's up to you. Um, whatever feels most natural. The, the, what happens is the faster your cadence, the less watts. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> the the oh, faster your cadence, the, the lower the resistance so that the wattage is, is constant. So you can either push harder less frequently or push the, what we do is set the, the actual work power requirements. So to give you an idea at the moment, you're doing about 70 watts and which should be very, very easy. And all of the measures here would suggest that it's very easy. 
your, um, your oxygen went up when you started exercising but is now sort of plateauing um, and, and is at a pretty low level. And to give you an idea, your VO2, your oxygen consumption at the moment is, is 23 mL per minute per kilogram, which is already more than what we measure in some of our patients with, with um, heart conditions. Really? When, they, when they're doing a test? Yep, so some patients with heart failure or with a weak heart, they will only be able to, at their very maximum of exercise, um, have a VO2 of 10 to 14 mL per minute per kilogram. So you already double that and you haven't really started working. Says you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Fans going on. Let's get serious. And we'd be expecting for a male of your age a VO2 of about 38 mL per minute per kilogram on average. Obviously, as, uh, as an athlete of your calibre, we'd be expecting substantially more than that. Males naturally have a higher VO2 than, than women, which is um, for the same age and, and amount of training, and that's probably in part related to differences in body composition. Right. More lean mass to fat in, in, um, in males, and also it does seem that even at the cellular level that the, the oxygen um, utilisation or the, the work of the mitochondria in, in metabolising oxygen is, is a bit more efficient in males. Having said that, we get a lot of our female athletes have superb oxygen uptake. Interestingly as well, and we often see this in elite athletes, your heart rate at the moment is 135, and relative to how much oxygen you're producing, it's, it's sort of low. Um, so uh, a lot of your ability to produce oxygen is from a lower heart rate with the heart pushing bigger volumes. And that again is sort of part of the elite athlete signature. Is there anything in that I'm not in a heavy training load like I normally would be when I come to do these tests? If it, so we tend to find if you're in a really heavy training load, um, firstly it would take a little bit off your VO2 and you get your highest result if you're a bit fresher. But one of the things we see is a blunt, a, a sort of bluntening of that heart rate response. So at any given VO2, your heart rate's a little bit lower when you're more fatigued. This element of the test where, you're, where it's hard but still physiologically comfortable, um, that's the most important <coughs> bit. Your VO2 is now about 55 mL per minute per kilogram, so it's sort of getting towards twice as fit as the average person, and you're, again, you're, you're still below the sort of hurt zone, if you like. Everything's, um, the body switches from using oxygen to, to meet all of the work needs, which is what it's doing at the moment. And then it gets to a point where oxygen um, is unable to meet all of the metabolic needs. And that's when the muscles start to produce acid. And they actually use that acid as part of the energy after that. 
but at the moment it's it's all aerobic or all oxygen. It's starting to transition about now at about 350 watts. You are definitely in the zone now where the body's producing a bit of acid, makes the breathing harder. To keep it up, doing really well. 420 plus watts. Really good. Oxygen use is starting to plateau, but we're just getting towards 70 mil per minute per kilogram. A bit more to go. Great work. Ah, how many watts? 495. 496. Ah. Well done. It's probably over 500 because the, the, um, the, it averages. So you've got over 500 watts. Brilliant work. We'll show you in a second, but... So straight away, you can already see one year later, okay, I wouldn't have the endurance to do back-to-back -back stage races or maybe a long classics race, but the level is still, hasn't really dropped away in 12 months. Your level of fitness is still elite. Like you had a VO2 over 70, very high numbers at ventilatory threshold. I suspect that if we measured this five, 10 years ago, your numbers would have been higher. Yeah, um, and you probably know that from from racing. It'd be hard for you to jump into into some of the races that you were doing, but it's still it's still elite compared to to most people that we measure. Interesting to see now what's actually happened with the heart. But from what you're saying now, it can be very difficult for you to see any change in 12 months. Yeah. So, I mean the. This is your heart rate, This see this sort of thatched area here, that's where a normal heart rate increase is during exercise. Yours tracked along normally, but about 10, 20 beats lower than, than what the average person would. But then got to the really very much to your predicted heart rate. Which was what? Which was that 184. Yeah, right. Um, and so your, all that tells us is that for any amount of oxygen the body needs, your heart rate needs only needs to be lower because you're pumping a lot of blood with every heartbeat. And that's absolutely classical for what we see of endurance athletes. There's a lot of variation. Some people, you know, have have get get that oxygen consumption by beating faster with less volume. But yours is about, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical or average of an elite endurance athlete. Leah, we're in the next room. What are we doing here? So what we're going to do today is take some ultrasound pictures of your heart. So what that looks at is the size and the pump function of the heart, how the valves are working, and we can also get an idea of the internal pressures inside the heart as well. So the kind of how all the plumbing is working essentially. What do I have to do? Lie down, just relax? Exactly. So lying on your left hand side, a bit of deep breathing. So nothing too complicated after the VO2, a nice <laughs> relaxing time. Let's do it.
What have you uh, seen so far or can you not see anything really until you get the results? Well, at the moment, um, you know, we generally pretty poker face when we do this, but the moment your heart looks like you're someone who's done a lot of exercise in the past, which is what we'd expect. So if I say, you know, average person came into the ultrasound room and I put the probe on and I saw that they had quite significant um, increase in the volume, of their heart in all the chambers, I would first up probably start asking them, so what exercise do you do in the past? Mm. Especially if there's someone who's a bit, you know, looks like they've done a bit of exercise. Um, if someone came in and you knew they had heart failure or etc., and couldn't lie flat on a bed, that's a different thing. But if someone prances into the room and they've ridden their bike here from somewhere you, you, yeah I'd, I'd start giving them a bit of a question of what their exercise routine is usually is because it can help us to contextualize what the changes are and if they're kind of relative to the amount of exercise someone's doing so if you can't talk to someone like that or you can't yeah. see them and you just have to study it like a yeah. an exam yeah, per yeah, se yeah. is there ways to see that that differentiate between, say, a sportsman and someone who's maybe got problems? Yeah, yeah, so there's a few extra things we look at. So we look at the the kind of remodeling in proportion to all the chambers. So if one, so we've got four main chambers in the heart, if one significantly increased more than the others, that might be kind of a bit of a highlight that actually Maybe there's something else going on here. Um, often in athletes, especially the endurance athletes, we see a somewhat kind of balanced increase in all the chambers to each other. So that can kind of tell. And then also depending on the exercise that someone's doing, if someone's doing more kind of endurance or um, kind of rowing often as well, we might see some more right-sided increases as well and strength training. Um, we can see different increases in that as well. But um, we kind of look at and often if we want to see athletes' hearts sometimes look like they're half asleep. Really? But yeah, they're, they're so, it can be so efficient at pumping at rest that, you know, like any muscle, it doesn't need to do that much to meet your body's oxygen demand. And that's why we do so much of our testing is focused on that exercise component. As soon as you put you know, in that MRI and you're cycling or you're on the VO2, we see that's when the heart really comes into its own. So that's why often if we're thinking there might be a problem with an athlete, we look at them at rest, but then we also do a lot of that exercise imaging to see what's really happening when that heart needs to give the body its requirements. All right, we've just done the echo, got a bit of time and back with Crystal. Now, what have we got coming up next? So up next is the cardiac MRI. Um, there's two parts to the MRI you're going to undergo. There's the resting, a normal cardiac MRI. We are going to inject some dye that was going to look at any scarring in the heart muscle. But we're also going to get you to exercise while lying in the MRI scanner. That's inject dye into me, into my body. Yes, so we're going to inject dye into you, into your body. <laughs> um, it's, it's not going to 
it it doesn't have any colour, but yes, it lights up uh, any areas of scarring within the heart muscle, which at the end, when Andre goes to your results, he'll be able to see. Then there is the exercise part where you will be clipped into a, a bike that's mounted on the end of the MRI bed. It's a very small crank because you'll need to be able to pedal while in the tunnel of the MRI so we need to give you enough room so you don't bump your knees against the roof of the scanner but then also have enough room to not get caught up with your heel on the bed while you're pedaling around mm. so it's it's a tiny little crank which you'll have to pedal very fast to manage the workloads it's like a clown bike that's like a, like it, being on a unicycle is it correct and so it's quite hard you'll feel like you're using your hamstrings your calves you can't it's not like being on the upright bike at all <laughs> The maximum watts that you can do on the supine bike that this bike can do is 300 watts, which you'll be doing at your high level exercise in the MRI. So once you push 500 watts on the upright bike, we measure 20, 40 and 60% for the workloads on the supine bike. But that means that you'll be pushing 100 watts 200 watts and 300 watts in the MRI scanner. Did myself a disfavor by doing a high amount of watts Correct. just now. Yes, the higher amount of watts you put on the upright bike, the higher <laughs> amount of watts you have to push in the MRI scanner, yes. That's why we leave that fun bit for, for last. <laughs> so what are we gonna see in this scan? Why do we do this um, with exercise? Because a lot of conditions, when you're just um, looking at the heart of at rest, it'll look completely normal. But then as soon as you start exercising it, that just shows a lot of things that kind of might not function all that well. Um, so it's just making the heart to work a little bit and then image it and see that everything is functioning as we'd expect it. It should be. Oh, all right, I've just come out of the MRI. It was pretty relaxing for some of it until we had to ride this mini bicycle and to be honest I thought I had it the first minute or two and then you got no perception of how long you're going to be doing this thing for even though you know you're doing it for nine minutes or whatever it is you don't know and it just feels like forever um, just waiting for that voice to come in on the headphones it was an interesting experience to say the least All right just before we leave it's not over yet I've got 24 hours left. I've just got wired up. Um, Crystal, what have you given me for the night? So it's a 24 hour hold to monitor. It's like 24 hours of continuous ECG monitoring. So it's gonna look at your electrical activity of the heart during that time, daytime, nighttime, look at any irregularities in your heart rate, how low it gets at night, also what it averages out over the day. Mm. Um, so mainly looking at any arrhythmias over the next 24, any irregularities over the next 24 hours. And it doesn't matter if I go running or riding or do nothing. That's just what you want to see. Yes, you can exercise with it. Some people like to do a big effort with it to see what their maximum heart rate can be out in the field compared to what they've done on the um, VO2 max test. Um, but you can just exercise as per normal and then we can look at what the heart rate got up to. Um, we're definitely interested at night, how low the heart rate gets, mm. um, and then it averages it over 24 hours, gives us good information.
right, Andre, we're back two days later. We're sitting in your office here. My results are in. I guess the first question is, let's just talk about before we did this test. What did you expect to see in these results from this test, from me being out of the world tour for a year? I think I expected to see a very high level of fitness because it is interesting. You obviously have kept riding, um, perhaps not to the same high levels of training and competition, but still I was expecting to see an elite professional uh, degree of fitness, which is what we saw on the VO2. And then what we always see with that is a big, um, well-functioning heart. Now, what have we seen? Let's have a look at the, let's get into some of the results. And you're going to go through a couple of these things here. We've got the echo, we've got the VO2, we've also got the um, MRI as well, which was interesting. I'm going to let you take it away. Let's run through some of these results and you can sort of explain to me what we've got here. Yep. So we put you through, you know, the full gamut of tests. And this is one of the simpler tests that we do to look at heart size and function, which is called an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. So we can you can see your heart here beating away with the valves opening and closing. Um, and immediately when I see this, um, I can see that it's a large heart. We can see that um, when we measure some um, some fairly simple measures, one called ejection fraction, which is how much blood the heart pumps out relative to its size. Um, in the athlete population, we often see um, ejection fractions that are quite low because the heart's pumping out, you know, it's pumping out an amount, but the heart's really big. So as a ratio, we often see ejection fractions of around 50, 55%. Yours is actually sort of quite high for an athlete. It doesn't mean so much, mm. but your ejection fraction is 61%, which would be bang smack in the normal range for a normal person. In athletes, um, and if anyone has this test who's an endurance athlete, don't be alarmed if your ejection fraction is 50, 55%. Um, it's just simply part of the, um, of the athlete's heart sort of spectrum with a, with a big heart. But you know, your heart's functioning perfectly normally. All of the measures, we've got a thing called global longitudinal strain here, which is the degree to which the heart sort of um, shortens or contracts. And we regard negative 18% as normal. Yours is exactly on that, negative 18%. Perfect. But again, like the other measures, we often see low values in the athletes because when the heart's just lying there at rest, it actually doesn't have to work that hard. I often say that the athlete's heart, it's almost like it's hibernating. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things the body always does is does, it, it's kind of lazy in a way. The body doesn't use any more energy than it has to. And because your heart, as we'll show on the MRI scan, because your heart's pumping hundred and pumping about 160 mils per heartbeat, to get the amount of blood flow that the organs need when you're just sitting there, it hardly has to pump. So it doesn't contract very hard and it beats very slowly to get the same amount of, of blood. Does that mean, obviously it means we've got a lower resting heart rate. When we relax, it doesn't need to beat as fast. Does that mean we've got a lower um, peak heart rate, max heart rate? Because... Technically, well, maybe not technically, because we're going harder. We're trying to get more out of our own body. Does it mean it's lower at the top? So it's a fascinating question, and and the answer is yes. So on average, highly trained endurance athletes have a lower peak heart rate than non-athletes. And to me, for ages, I just thought, how on earth can that be? Because, mm. you know, the way that you pump more blood during exercise, the main way you pump more blood is to pump more quickly. 
what happens in endurance athletes is there's a little bit of a sacrifice of that top output so that your heart can pump um, more blood at a lower heart rate when you're racing at about 60-70%. So it's almost like endurance athletes train themselves to be most efficient when they're at their threshold, when they're at you know 70-80% of their maximum and they lose that top 95 to 100% by, you know, the heart gets bigger and pumps less frequently. Then when you're going at really maximum exercise because the heart's so big, it's actually hard for the heart to fill. And so you get a, you get a reduction in the maximum heart rate. And then during things like the tour, um, you know, you, all of you and all of your mates would have found that your heart rate in the third week is lower than it was in the first rate, week. And I think that's a bit of a reflection that the heart's um, becoming a little bit fatigued and having difficulties filling. Is there any obvious signs of people's size of their heart by their, say, max heart rate? So, for instance, Caleb Ewan, I know, used to have, well, he probably still does. When we were racing, he'd be at 220, you know, heart rate. When I'm at 180, like still a hard point, but he'd be just that much higher than me. I'm like, why is that? Does he have a really small heart that needs to do that? Or he just has a better functioning heart? Maybe maybe a, a little bit of both. Um, I've looked at Caleb's heart in the past and, and I can't exactly remember the answer to the size relative to everyone else's. But one of the things, one of the differences will be the training style because he is the sort of cyclist versus a domestique who needs that top 5%. If he trained, you know, up the hills every day, he probably could become more of a, in you know, in. It's a funny thing to say because obviously all Tour de France are endurance, but I reckon he could lose some of his speed and get better at climbing mountains long, which is not what he wants. Mm -hmm. So I think to a degree that maximum heart rate is both um, his physiology and that's what's made him a great sprinter, but I also think that his training probably then plays into that so that he maintains it. So you're not necessarily looking at, say, heart rate values and going, I can predict what sort of heart I'm looking at. Not not really, but it is interesting how often they all go together. Okay. So, you know, you're really out and out domestique. Like, for example, your physiology on the VO2 max, we were we were all saying that you, you were just going, 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 and it looked like we were going to be there all day. Then you hit your ventilatory threshold and the test was almost over. Yeah. You know, there really wasn't much in there. And that's the signature of a you know of a sort of domestique, the sort yeah. of person that can go all day where, where your level at threshold is superb but then you know your ability in in the say two kilometer time trial at the end of a long stage wouldn't be the same as as mm. a you know as a caleb or some of these people that have more room in that top level mm. in that top it's not always correct there's a lot of different things mm. and there's psychology and there's you know there's efficiencies there's skills but it is interesting how much the physiology that we see on the screen often fits with the type of sort of puncher or, or more um, domestique, the climber. You, you do get a real sense of that from the physiology. Well, let's have a look now at um, what's this next one we've got. So this is the MRI scan mm -hmm. and the MRI is, you know, one of our favourite things because it just so beautifully shows the heart shows all of the little sort of um, trabeculations or muscle strands. It just everything's very, very clear and we can measure the volumes extremely accurately. And so the point here is, you know, your heart is 260 mil in the left ventricle. So the heart has four chambers and your left ventricle is 260 mil. 
You're right, ventricle is 261 mil, interestingly, that they're similar because often we see the right ventricle being a bit bigger. That's just, you know, mm. some people have big noses, big ears, whatever. It's okay. a personal characteristic rather than anything too significant. But you put those two together and then the atria, and that's about all up a 450, 500 mil. That's half a litre pump. It's a massive thing to be fitting in your chest. I was saying to make some sort of comparison, we pulled up one of our non-athletic um, uh, subjects. Um, we had a look at that. Which So we won't use the subject's name, but this is a person with a VO2 who's 35 years of age, who has a VO2 of um, 32 mil per minute per kilogram. So what was a little like? bit under half. Yours was 72, bit under half. And we find that there's a really strong relationship between heart size and VO2. So I would be expecting that this person's heart is about half the size of yours. And so if we just calculate the volumes uh, of the of the heart, and you can immediately see that there's more lungs, there's mm. more room in the chest. The heart, instead of being a sort of half a litre pump, is now sort of about the size of a can of Coke. Um, and his end diastolic volume, yours was 260, his is 147 mil. You were pumping 160 mils with every heartbeat. He's pumping 85. So, you know, in rough terms, he's half as fit and his heart is half the size. It's a little bit, he's a little bit more than half as fit and a little bit, you know, bigger heart than half, but it's pretty close. It's just funny. Like when you run these tests, you know, these these other um, people you have in here who aren't athletes, they're just normal people. We're not extraordinary anyway but you know what i mean they're still running through the test for about whatever it is 10 13 minutes or whatever and they're just fatiguing the same so visually you wouldn't know any different would you like it still looked the same as me on the bike didn't it if you didn't look at the numbers the wattage the the output and things they they look very much the same i mean our controls work really hard i think sometimes with the endurance athletes it's very clear that you're used to burying yourselves and so you see almost always that people reach their plateau or maximum and even go a bit beyond. Um, but we see that the controls work really hard. The, the difference is that the, the, their output at ventilatory threshold is often a lot lower and their maximum is also lower. If we put, and we've done this before just to demonstrate, if we sat average Joe next to you on a, on a um, bike with exactly the same protocol, it's actually quite fascinating because the person who is starting to, <laughs> you know, get toward maximum with their exercise and you'd just be sitting there like you're not even trying. That's what I found so funny the other day when you were telling me, all right, we're at 38. This is when most average shows are finishing. I was like, yeah. like I wasn't saying I was just like cruising, but it was, it yeah. was pretty beginning. I just, it didn't quite actually settled into me. I was like, that doesn't really feel right. Like, yeah, how can I be that far ahead of someone? And remember that our controls here are pretty average. So if you get people below average, I often say that, you know, if you think about VO2 max, the range in a 35-year-old, if it's getting much under about 25, then the people are generally pretty sick. But you would get a range from 25 up to, say, 75 mil per minute. So that's a three-time um, difference, three-fold difference in fitness. You try to think about that with any other characteristic. If you, if we had that in height, that would be like a, a oompa loompa walking down the street next to some 
you know, mm. three metre tall person. We, we just don't see those differences. And fitness is an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily flexible trait. You can, um, you can be like yourself, unbelievably fit. And then there's other people going around today who will be short of breath, you know, walking up the out of the train station. What about at the top end, you know, in the world tour, let's say, that difference is there, you know, because there's clearly guys at the very pointy end of it, you know, the, the Walt Van Arts, you know, the Vanderpools, the Pitcocks of the world at the moment. Yep. Are we expecting if we were sitting on the trainer together, you know, what sort of, I know you probably have an idea of what the top end VO2s are. What's the difference between, say, me, a 72, and like someone in the top end? Like, well, how far away am I seeing from the top end when it comes to physiology? I reckon you're pretty close. I mean, our experience and what I've heard about on the on the sort of world tour, remember someone telling me that at Cervelo they used to get cyclists in and if their VO2 was under 75, they'd tell them that they, you know, to come back, you know, they weren't interested. I'm not sure that that... that I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'm not... Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I suspect yours was probably two or three mil high, but you probably in your career sitting around that 75 mark. There will be some really elite cyclists below 75, but there won't be many. Mm. Most of the guys we measure in the tour are 75 or over. What's over? 80, 85? Yeah, the highest we've measured is in the low 80s. I can't remember exactly, 82, 84. There's, there are reports in the literature of people um, in the high 80s and 90. Um, the, the really interesting thing, though, is once you get beyond a dotted line, let's say the 75, it's not like you'll get the winner of the tour and they've got the best VO2. Yeah, okay. There's a whole lot of really interesting things and probably one of the strongest predictors, you know, your, efficiencies and, your efficiency and speed at or output at your ventilatory threshold. Mm-hmm. So if you, can, if you can push, you know, say 400 watts or something at your ventilatory threshold, so that's what you can push when you're riding up the, up the hills, then that's the, that's the advantage rather than what you're really top output is if you're a good test i say yeah yeah it's interesting and the same is true of the heart is that i could measure all of these hearts and there's some people who have a small heart and i would say say pretty confidently then they're never going to be an elite athlete you know they're never going to be top of the patch but above a certain dotted line it's not like the biggest heart is the best athlete you know amongst if i was to measure the whole of the tour de france there would be a mix of heart sizes that all be big. And actually, we know this because we've from our data and from others, they're all big hearts. But the winner doesn't necessarily have the biggest heart. Is there somewhere in the world in a country where they've gone to the extreme of testing young children, I guess, or teenagers to find out, okay, I know there's this um, athlete identification, but that's just like jumping over stuff or running down a you know 100 metres um, stretch and seeing if you're fast or not. Yep. Has a country taken to the extreme of actually doing lab testing and going, you're good, you're not good? I think they have. It's a little bit obscured in yeah. myth and rumour, but um, certainly some of the Eastern Bloc countries a few decades ago, and, and there's been some pretty heavy talent identification in kids that has been done in China, for example. I'm not sure how educated sometimes those have been. I think what would be the most useful thing as a talent identification would be to put a whole bunch of, to almost have a two-stage process. Take people that you think might be good 
train them for three, six months, and then test them. Mm. Because if you give people a training stimulus, the really great athletes will react to that pretty quickly in terms of improving their fitness, and we will see changes in heart size, et cetera. Because when we've measured 15- and 16-year-old athletes coming through our program, their hearts are already very big. What do you think has changed for me, um, if anything? Probably, you know, has anything sort of changed for me? Do you think, like, am I actually healthier now? You know, am I actually in my optimum? Because I've had some time to let things soak up, you know, because, like, clearly, okay, my VO2 max is maybe two or three points down, but I really did feel like I was going to be things on here you could have seen. You know, my my diet this year, I used to eat for performance. Yeah. I'd fuel myself properly to train. I'm not saying I eat um, junk food now, but I... I just eat to to live, you know. If I get up and I miss breakfast or if I have a crumpet and make my way and have a coffee or whatever, I'm not eating cleanly anymore. And, of course, my alcohol consumption's gone up. Yep. Is any of this stuff evident in what you're seeing here? Not not really. I mean, I, I think, you know, for example, your percentage body fat on the DEXA, I think, was 10 11%. Um, 13. 13. I wish, I wish it was 10. You know. Always shocks athletes how it seems like 13% would be a whole lot. That's actually very lean. But I suspect, again, when you were racing, it was probably in the, you know, 7, 8 range. Mm. We rarely see under that. But so it's like the the two percenters between now and racing can make quite a difference in terms of performance. But in terms of health, it's probably healthier where you are now. Not saying that it was unhealthy then, but as a competitive athlete, you've always got to sort of be against the dotted line. You know, mm. you're really pushing the boundaries in terms of um, recovery, what we call, you know, a normal training stimulus includes some overreaching, meaning that you're deliberately pushing yourself into fatigue to get better training benefits. Sometimes that becomes overtraining, which can be a bit unhelpful or, and even unhealthy. You're pushing that boundary. Whereas now you don't need to push that boundary and you'd be sitting quite safely behind, you know, the, the, the real edge. And this is every test we've done here is uber healthy. You've mm. got an extraordinary capacity. Your heart looks good in terms of its function. It's big, but, you know, that is a good thing. Your capacity and your, your um, heart size and things, if you maintain a reasonable level through life, at the age of 70, 80, you'll still have a VO2 of 40 mil or 35 mil. So you will be fitter than this guy who we have on the screen at the age of 35. So what he's able to do, you know, jump on his bike and ride to wherever, um, up a few general hills, you'll be able to do that at 75, 80 years of age. And we see that we've got a bunch of you know, older athletes and it really is kind of training for life because in their 70s and 80s, they have a level of function that matches that of the average Australian 30-year-old. And that that's what I want to have. That's what I want to aspire to. I'm not so interested in living. You know, everyone says, do athletes live till they're 110? No, it's not a big difference in terms of how long they live. But I tell you, if I line mm-hmm. up my you know 75 80 year old athletes and they sit in the waiting room next to the average they are like a different species you can see it visually you can absolutely see it and then even more so if they go for a walk up the hill with their their mates everyone can see who the who the you know professional cyclist was when they were 30 40 years of age well tell me then 
what about everyone out there listening now, um, you know, who haven't been a pro athlete or maybe haven't even really done that much sport in their life until now or maybe want to do more now? Getting on a bike and, you know, doing a, the all the gravel events out there, they're probably thinking, well, I'm doomed actually. I don't have that, you know, VO2 of 70. Yep. My heart can't grow now because I've missed that period that we talked about when you were younger, it's grown or whatever. Yep. What's what's the what's the um, the takeaway point here? Can you actually do something about it? The answer is yes. You can always improve your fitness, and with an improvement in fitness comes a reduction in heart attack risk, stroke risk, risk of diabetes, risk of a whole lot of cancers. So there's never a point at which you're sort of too old or too unfit to get more fit. Everyone will benefit. Now, having said that. The biggest bang for the buck is before the age of 60. If you've not exercised and you're over the age of 60, you definitely should and you can get benefits, but the heart loses some of its plasticity. So if you really want to be super fit, you need to be thinking about, you know, uh, middle age or younger. And will the heart grow? It will. So that's uh, at least up until the age of 60, if we put people through a training program of a few months or longer, we see the heart grow. If you're over the age of 60, then we see less of that. It's a bit like it's a bit like going and doing yoga. If you're young or middle-aged, you get more flexible. Uh, you, there comes an age where it's really hard to get that flexibility. I sort of see the same in the heart, is that if you're young or middle-aged, you can really see the heart getting bigger and smaller with fitness, whereas beyond about the age of 60, the the changes we see are more modest. Is there like a bang for your buck exercise, not bang for your buck, but the right exercise? You know, like a, there's this talk of, you know, getting the gym for that bone density. Yep. That's something that we interestingly yep. found out about my bone density. It was looking quite good comparative to cyclists because yep. cyclists have bad bone density. Or is it about doing endurance sports because that's going to really work your cardio system? I don't know. People out there go, I've only got time to do one of you yep. know, one thing. So from a from a health perspective, if we put you know sporting goals aside and just say from a health perspective, I often tell people that you should think about exercise a bit like a diet and have a bit of everything on the mm. plate. So you want a little bit of low intensity aerobic, whether that's walking, going for a gentle ride or a, or a jog, you know things like that that take longer but are not too intense. And then you want some a short, small amount of high intensity exercise training. So something that really gets you breathing. Um, and that can be a minute, two minutes, do it a few times. Like, um, for example, jogging up a hill or doing some sprints on the ergo. or But things that really where you're going so hard you couldn't have a conversation, but just for a few minutes and relaxing and recovering completely. So that gives you really good fitness, a combination of, of that. So low intensity and then short, high intensity, hit training. And then the other thing I'd say for a good mix on the plate is some strength training. And I think that becomes really important, not just for partly bone density, um, physical capacity, but things like balance and injury prevention. It's really, you know, I think often as endurance athletes skimp a little bit on the strength um, and I think that that three combination is perfect. I'm listening to this and it's very easy for me to say because I love exercise. It's part of my my life. It's part of me. I just feel crap and mentally crap if I don't go out and yeah. do something. But it also angers me, I guess it's not the right word, when I hear this, I've just got no time. I can't make yeah. time for it because it's like what I'm listening to all this, it's, 
it's quality of life. It's it's something that's really really important for for that you know for quality of life later in your life. Um, when you hear that, I guess you probably hear that I just don't have time or. I don't know, what's your approach to that? Is it about trying to find something that people enjoy doing? Because I think a lot of people, like we said before, it is easy for me because when I do it, it's easier for me to get better and better because of my physiology. Well, I think you raised a whole lot of things that are really important there. One's enjoyment, because even though I just said you need to have three things on your plate, reality is people will do exercise they enjoy doing. So whilst you can have that as a broad principle, if you enjoy a particular sport, then that's really key and then you can think about adding different bits in the other thing in terms of time management i think there's two aspects one is to find some exercise where it is manageable from for your lifestyle be realistic you know don't don't think if i've only got a little bit of time i'm suddenly going to take up you know ultra endurance trail running i'd i'd be realistic about what time you have so that it's something that can be sustained the other is I think as a society, we often just don't even give it priority that it should. And I think that starts in school. Mm. In school, you know, kids should be taught at school physical activity is as important as some of the other things that they're, that, that they're learning. And, I'm, you know, we're probably better at that in Australia than some other countries because I know in some countries in Europe, for example, school sport isn't sort of compulsory or part of the program. It's good that we have some. But I'm not sure that kids are really taught these days just how important, because it's something that is going to be with you for life. I'm not sure how many people remember trigonometry when they're 75, whereas, <laughs> you know, if they're, if they're still able to walk up the stairs and things, it's, it's absolutely key. It's key for enjoyment, health and capacity later in life. I think it's really got to be sort of prioritised in our, in our everyday education. It might be an obvious question, but an active lifestyle, you know, my mum's a very busy woman. She's at home. She's just taking care of the family. Even I'm noticing it now. Maybe that's why I've been able to keep some of those beers off the tummy is that whenever I'm not out exercising, I'm just busy at home with the kids and stuff. Is that also a, a contributor or is it needs to be actually physical where you're really out doing a run or something? It's definitely a contributor, but it's, it's interesting. I reckon the two things are almost inseparable because fit people do a lot. And, and so, you know, is it that they're doing a lot that makes them fit? I think it's absolutely mm. part of the fact that your capacity at 72 means that you can do more in the day ah, yeah, and course. just do a lot more. Because if you're, we often, let's, for example, say, say this person whose heart we're looking at with a VO2 of 30, if they walk up four flights of stairs out of the station, they've pretty much hit their maximum mm. and it's taken four or five minutes you in your week will hit your maximum probably about once on some really hard all of your activities of life are so well within your comfort zone that you, you can do, do a lot yeah. more and not get fatigued so you've got this enormous reserve where by playing with the kids and stuff is just a you know a piece of cake whereas other people get exhausted because they're at their limit multiple times during a day so you'd be less judgmental actually about some people um, it does become, you know, it becomes a vicious circle. If, if people um, don't prioritise their fitness, then fatigue, you know, can sort of set in because of how much work they have to do. What are some red flags then? People out there who may have, you know, haven't really been good to themselves or who knows, maybe they have been. What are some red flags we should be worrying about? Because look, my wife and I, and I know some other people sometimes experience, oh, geez, what was that pain in my chest? Geez, that was tight pain. Is that something to worry about? And you know, and it goes away in a second. Someone out there's experienced something else. What's something where you go, 
that's actually a red flag. You need to go and get yourself checked. It's a good question. It's hard to give specifics yeah. for everything, but but um, I think it really is important because we often talk in these things about um, about screening, like going and get tests done to see if a problem might develop. And all of the tests we have to look into the future are not great. Whereas if someone has a symptom, it's a really good time to evaluate because we can sort of often, um, probably more often than not, we do the test and we're able to say, that's not the heart, you're fine. That also is therapeutic because mm. if the person's worried, they mm. need to have that worry removed. But if the the really, the things that I would definitely be getting onto the phone to your doctor very quickly about is any chest pain, or in fact, we often say any pain above the belly button, particularly if it comes on when doing some some work. If you, mm-hmm. you know, if you are walking up the stairs and you get a funny pressure in the chest, that even if it happens once is enough to um to to call your doctor the really sharp pains that last one or two seconds they're almost never related to the heart so what it's are they common to get these muscle spasms yeah probably you know the chest it's frustrating because the heart's in the middle of the chest and yet the chest is about the most complex sort of mechanical structure of the body so you've got all these ribs and muscles going in different directions so it's quite common to get these kind of like almost breathtaking sort of, ah, what's that? And yeah. then it's gone. Yeah. And those, they're common, they're not related to the heart and I, you, you don't need to worry about those. But pain that comes on, often a bit more gradually, often felt as a heaviness but can be different, but almost always heart pain will last a minute or more. Yeah. And all And like you said, these were when we were like cutting up vegetables and things like that. You know, it's not necessarily when I was exercising. Yeah, more exactly sitting on the train, get this funny pang and go, what could that be? So I wouldn't be as... The other things, the other red flags are if people feel sort of, especially with pain, but even without, if people feel short of breath, sort of clammy and sweaty. One of the ones we see in athletes is people coming in and they're saying, I've got this hill at the end of the street that I ride up every week, no problem. And over the last two weeks, I'm really short of breath when I get halfway up. It's new. It's never been like that there's something wrong that is a really really good reason to go and get tested how often should you get checked if you're not experiencing any of these problems you know is it once a year once in a blue moon when should you go oh you know what it's been a while i think as a males and females particularly males because we are at higher risk of um, heart disease beyond middle age beyond the age of depending on whether you have a family history but let's say sort of thinking about it at 35 and certainly from 40 it's good to have a yearly check where your blood pressure and your cholesterol are checked um, because they are two things. They're not, they're not um, perfect, but they're two indicators as to whether further tests need to be done. But as I said, in some ways, I'm not as fussed about people getting, um, almost see it more important, that red flag discussion, i.e. if people mm. have symptoms, go and see your doctor quickly. Don't just ignore it. But in addition to that, having a chat to your doctor so it's in in your mind and getting your cholesterol and and blood pressure checked all right one of the other things that i did wear as was the halter device which was the 24-hour device now what have you got back from that you know there's one thing when i did the test but what's going on with me when i'm back at home being a bit of a scallywag so the halter monitor is um is a way that we can look at the electrical patterns in this case we you wear the device for 24 hours and we can see if there's extra heartbeats or any little clusters of heart rhythm disturbance. 
We're particularly interested in this in athletes because we know in middle-aged and older athletes that some heart rhythm problems like atrial fibrillation, which is just one of the more common erratic arrhythmias, which is a real nuisance rather than it doesn't tend to cause, well, it not doesn't tend to, it never causes people to die suddenly. But even these problematic arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, they're more common in athletes. So we're very interested and that's part of the reason as part of this research we got you to wear the monitor. Your heart is incredibly stable. You had um, 40 extra beats, i.e. on top of the, um, uh, you know, whatever it is, tens of thousands of heartbeats over the, over the day, you had 40 ex- oh, right. extra ones. And of those 40 extra ones, only four of them came from the ventricle. That's incredibly stable. That's what we. That's about as as sort of normal or reassuring as we can get, and that's what we see in the majority of people. Someone who hasn't exercised or who's who's lived a normal, healthy life and hasn't been a pro athlete, you would expect to see this from them. And actually, in this, in the Holter device test, you may see differences with athletes. Now, this is is that what you're trying to say that with an athlete who's been pushing himself for many years. The halter device is going to show maybe where things are starting to come undone. Yeah, it, it, the halter monitor, we're starting halter to learn monitor, more than, than we realise because there's almost two different um, issues. When people, during their career, when they're competing really hard and we often see things like pauses, gaps between heartbeats that can be two or three seconds. And we just, we never see that in the general community. When people retire, they tend to disappear. And so yours, for example, you had no pauses of, of two seconds or, or more. During your career, that may have been different. So there's some things that occur during a racing career and then go away. And then there's some things that tend to come on later in life, like atrial fibrillation. Um, some, there are, uh, you know, people will know about some young endurance athletes. We've got some Olympic athletes who have had atrial fibrillation during their career or earlier in life. But more typically, those heart rhythm problems come on in your 50s, 60s, 70s. All of your testing mean that you're um, put you at low likelihood of that. But it's something that that could occur, and and it it's the one, if you like, sting in the tail. One downside of being uh, highly fit is that the risk of of atrial fibrillation in some of these arrhythmias is slightly more. Is that a reason to sort of slow down or do less? I don't think it is because it's like um, you know. Every other tick is in the good column. Mm. You'll be more functional, you know, statistically live a bit longer, lower risk of all of these diseases, and up against that, this slight increase in a in a heart rhythm problem that fits more in the nuisance category than anything else. We more or less answered my my last question. Really, is you know, what does the future really look like for me and other you know retired pro athletes? Um, are we expecting just this to slowly you know get less and less, or? I guess that's sort of what you're indicating is that it's just going to be a slow decline um, as as my exercise sort of slowly decreases. Yeah, and, and as age comes on, you do become physiologically and biologically a little less fit with age. Everyone would realise that. But you can't take it for granted. If you stop exercising altogether, you won't main, your, your fitness will drop away quite quickly. But if you just maintain good levels of exercise, you've set yourself up with the kind of reserve and fitness you have now you've set yourself up for an independent life for the rest of your life you'll still have reserve um, when you're 70 80 years of age and you'll be able to do what you want to do and 
and I don't think people think about just how important that is. And and if there was a message for everyone out there, it's when you when you're in your middle age, get fit so that you're feeling better when you're 70 and 80. And it it really works like that. Well, once again, I love being in here. I've got just keep talking about this and asking a million questions that you're probably thinking. Hey, stop asking me all these hypotheticals, but um, they're great. I love doing the testing. As hard as it was to be able to have this data on me up here on the computer and to be able to discuss it with you here, it's been really special. Thanks, Andre. Absolute pleasure, Mitch. Well, there we go. A bit of an anti-climax in a way because nothing has really changed. But what a privilege it was to be able to go in there and do all these tests and actually understand how I'm sitting, how I'm tracking, and actually just to know that everything's okay. I know you're probably sitting back there thinking, yeah, of course, you know, you raced and, you know, you were physically active the whole of last year, but you still got that question lingering over your head. Is it all okay in there? What are those tight pains that I feel sometimes? Or is that something to worry about? That was the best thing about going in there and doing all that testing. A massive thanks goes out to Rafa, of course, who are supporting the podcast this year. I'm loving working with them again on the podcast, but of course, outside the podcast and all the little events and rides that we do, Will Jones, who's piecing these episodes together this year and always with Life on the Peloton, I'm giving him a ton of audio and he's streaming it together to make an awesome little story and a listen for you guys. Meg behind the scenes, who's doing all the nuts and bolts to make this show happen as well. And of course, you guys for listening. Last but not least, the Bake Institute, Andre Lagersh and his team for putting up with me that day and running me through those tests and putting up with the little microphone that I had carrying around with me all day. It was a real privilege to be in there and to produce this podcast out of a great day undergoing these tests. Coming up, you guys, in two weeks, I have got the legend himself, Chris Froome. I sat down with him last week here in Melbourne and had a chat about his career. It really, really was an honor. I hope you guys enjoy that. That is coming up. So until then, cheers, guys. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.